you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's happening, team? Thanks for being here. You're currently listening to episode 60, and my guest is the most photographed man on Wall Street, Peter Tuckman. Peter is a broker on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and he's worked there for the past 30 years. So as you could imagine, he's seen massive shifts in the landscape of trading, especially on the floor, and has been in the thick of it for many significant market events. During our interview, Peter shares some of his most memorable moments, reflecting on the crash of 87 and right through to what it was like to be there trading the Alibaba IPO. He also explains the role of a broker on the floor of the stock exchange today and almost like a lesson in history, how this has changed over time. And of course, much, much more. Now, I had a lot of fun doing this interview. Peter has an undeniable passion and excitement for markets, which you'll pick up on straight away, I'm sure. So I hope you enjoy this interview. A couple of things I'll mention quickly. This interview was recorded on the 11th of February, 2016. Now I say that just because Peter references some recent market events during the interview and the sound quality from Peter's side suddenly improves after about 10 minutes. So please don't panic if it sounds a little rough to begin with. All right, guys, let's get into it. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, and here is my guest from New York City, Peter Tuckman. Peter, it's such an honor to be speaking with you. How's it going, buddy? All right, my friend. Peter Tuckman here. Good to hear you, Aaron. <laughs> likewise, likewise. So tell us, good day in the markets today. What was it like? Uh, you know what? I would have to say that today goes into the top 10 crazier days that I've experienced. Um, you know, we're seeing, you know, look, since January 1st, we're seeing days of volatility that are, are powerful. Uh, we are seeing a trend that looks a bit like a broken market. We're seeing a lot of information that's coming into the market that is people are reacting to in a big way. We're seeing, starting to see some fearful trading, some fearful selling. You know, the oil trade has, has really impacted the market in a big way. The Fed 
you know, yesterday we had these rumors, and in fact, it was bored out by the um, by Congress and uh, Miss Yellen's uh, chat that she is uh, requesting the banks to uh, address a possible negative interest rate and a stress test with that, which is sort of a, you know, it's a confusing idea in my mind. I don't understand what negative interest rates mean. I don't think the public does. I don't think Janet Yellen does. And then you've got the problem with the banks in Europe, which is a huge, huge problem. And so these are the most um, sort of overpowering uh, situations that are really hitting the market over the last week or so. You know, we, we've seen a sell-off. Are we in correction mode? Yes, it seems that way. You know, is this liquidation of some, some funds? Perhaps. Are the people who are in the energy trade getting eviscerated? For sure. Is oil broken down below every possible level we've seen in decades? Absolutely. Is the, is the fear of failure in European banks a huge looming problem? It's been clear in the last week or so that that's kind of a new entity in this big mishmash of madness that's going on. So, and then we've got this whole Fed thing that, you know, they, they, their decision to raise rates, which I think was a mistake, they waited way too long to do it, um, is now being, is they, you know, they've said that it's going to be data driven, meaning that are we going to raise them again in March? Well, only if the economy is showing some lift and a market that's oh, down thousands of points since January 1st is showing towards if we're going after data driven, then we may not be able to raise those rates and then perhaps we may even lower the rates. So today we, we had a huge global sell-off last night due to these um, fear of default and a bunch of these um, sort of, they're called, I don't know, I, I call them cocoa puffs. These European bond deals that are they're using to try and raise money to, uh, to, to support them, people are afraid they're just going to be blank paper by the time they come to fruition. And so we had a huge global sell-off overnight. We came in this morning down 300. Market proceeded to sell off even further. Oil broke 27. And then, you know, it looked like we were going to maybe get some capitulation and a complete real puke, as it were. And then suddenly OPEC came out at 245 with a statement saying that they were going to consider restricting uh, dumping oil on the market and production of oil. And this was, the, and the market rallied 280 points in about four minutes. And you know, it, it just it's you know from a day trader's point of view, people who are sitting on the short side going, okay, oh my God, what are we going to do? We should probably close at the lows here at 245. Suddenly, you have a market that rallies almost 300 points on a blip of significant news, nonetheless, but but still just a blip of news in the big picture. And then. Um, you know, so people who were caught short got demolished. You know, I don't think there was anybody who was planning on this news coming out. So if you hopped on board the, the long train at 245, maybe you made some money. But then it rolled back over once people started digesting and assimilating that news, saying, you know what? Well, oil needs to rally $50 before it's going to have a positive effect on this market. We are so deep down the rabbit hole that, um, you know, a little bit, a little blip, as big as OPEC is, and as powerful as they are, a little blip in the production and, and restriction of distribution 
is not going to turn this broken market around. So the market proceeded to sell once off again, and we closed down about 270 points. So I got, I got whipsawed a number of times. Um, I, uh, as I've been, you know, my description on a daily basis is like a seagull being thrown around by a hurricane lately. You know, just when you get a sort of a handle on what you think is going to happen in the day, it does one of these two o'clock rallies, which, you know, whether they're bear market rallies, whether they're dead cat bounces, whether they're, you know, hitting a technical level, whether it's some guy, uh, you know, sitting in his pajamas, who's got deep pockets, hitting machine, hitting buttons, buying spiders and buying futures. And, um, you know, so all that being said, Aaron, it was a crazy wild ride today, you know? Yeah, I mean, it sure sounds like it. So I think it's safe to say um, there's there's plenty of action um, ahead. But Peter, let's take this back to the mid-80s. So we're going to step back in time. I want to hear about how you originally found your way onto the New York Stock Exchange. So tell us, how did you get your start? Well, I, uh, so I grew up in New York City. Um, I, my parents are actually uh, Eastern European. They are Holocaust survivors. They came to New York in 1950. So I grew up here on the Upper West Side in New York. Went to high school, went to college, got a degree in agriculture. That was my dream, actually. And halfway through, I realized I was not going to be a farmer, and I decided to study international business. I graduated college, went and got an MBA in business, and started trading uh, commodities in the early 80s. I opened up a record store uh, in downtown in Greenwich Village in 1980, and, um, and then sort of my world sort of came crashing down a little bit. Commodity, I lost all the money I'd made in the market. And my, uh, my life was sort of, it was just sort of, I, I didn't have direction. And I ended up moving to West Africa for a couple of years where I started learning. Um, I worked for a Norwegian oil company and um, studying computers and ran the finances for the, actually for the dictator of this West African nation called the People's Republic of Benin. And that sort of came to an abrupt halt in 1984, and I was sent back to the U.S., and I got a summer job as a teletypist on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange for Cowan & Company. My father was a doctor, and he had a patient who was a head partner at Cowan & Company. So May 26, 1985, I came down there, and the, uh, you know, it was basically open outcry, a lot of paper, a lot of screaming and yelling. And I had the, you know, the, the, the thing about the floor of the stock exchange is there's really no training for any of the jobs down there. Basically, it's been a business of Irish, Jewish, Italian families. The grandfather started there. You know, then your father worked there. Your uncle worked there. You got a summer job. You ran around as a squad. You started at the bottom, like a caste system in a way. And you worked your way up. You know, it's not a job that's for the faint of heart. It's not a job that you can study for. It's basically a job that if you have certain characteristics, which are good people skills, good story skills, quick with money, good with people, and you, 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 you thrive on stress, then it's basically the environment for you. So while I started as a, as a teletypist for the summer of 1985, just typing in trades, you know, you would basically have brokers who would go out and 
execute stock. The paper would come into the booth. You know, you bought 100 shares of XYZ from uh, broker, you know, Bear Stearns broker number 985, and you were Cowan and you sold them 100 shares, piece of paper, everything written up, and I would input this into a computer. It was sent up to the Cowan office, and it was the bottom, bottom rung of the job. But the atmosphere on the floor, I worked right under the podium in the main room of the New York Stock Exchange. I worked in a booth that was surrounded by Dean Witter, Cowan and Company, Morgan Stanley, and Ivan Boski's company, who uh, I, we can discuss at a later time. He was one of the first, one of the largest corporate raiders back in the 80s. He was indicted for insider trading way on early. All that being said, it was an environment that I loved and I thrived on. And come September of 85, after my summer job was done, uh, I, 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 I love the environment. I love the people. I love the action. I am a, you know, I'm a loud, boisterous, obnoxious guy with big personality and big energy. And so I knew that this was my job. It was my calling. And I knew I could never work anywhere else. And so I requested to get a regular job with Cowan and Company and uh, they liked me and they saw my potential and they gave me a job as an option phone clerk in the same booth on the floor of the stock exchange. Uh, and option phone clerks at the time. So basically you have booths on the floor of the exchange that are connected to trading desks in New York and then maybe in turn connected to trading desks all over the world. Basically you've got an institutional trading desk, which is um, portfolio managers trading big institutional money, private investing money. You've got a retail desk, which are sort of the small, smaller investors. And then you have an option desk, which is where the option guys are trading, whether it's customer money, whether it's um, hedging the positions of the company and whatnot. And then you have, so you have phone lines going down to the floor where orders are entered, whether they're institutional big orders, retail small orders, and then option, what's called option layoff business. So the option desk is trading options, and to hedge themselves, they would enter small retail equity orders, buy 500 shares of Philip Morris, sell 500 shares of Disney, buy 200 of this, cancel 300, leave 100. And it was sort of a very aggressive, crazy environment. And I ran about 100 phones at the time, um, and I just thrived off that. I loved it, and it was really a wonderful place for me. And it was really the beginning of the, my path to being a broker, my path to stardom, as it were, my path to being a broker, because from an option clerk, you go to be a retail clerk, and then a retail clerk, you become an institutional clerk. An institutional clerk, you become a broker. Now, in the 80s, that path from teletypist to broker, which is, you know, being on the floor of the stock exchange, one's goal is to be a trader, to be a broker was often a very long road. It was a possibly anywhere from 10 to 12 year path from the bottom of the rung to the top. And there is no fast track to it. You've got to do every job on the way there, right? You got to clean the toilet bowls. You got to chop the onions. You got to be the sous chef and you got to be the head chef. So normally that path is a very long, arduous task. And it may take anywhere from 10 to 12 years back in the day for, for most people. It didn't matter really who your father was, or your grandfather was, whether he owned the firm, ran the firm, or was a partner, you still had to pay your dues. And paying your dues meant really learning the business in and out. 
So I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I started as a teletypist in 85, and by 80, late 80, uh, October, by late October 1988, after the crash, I got a seat on the stock exchange. Probably one of the fastest progressions they, they had ever seen down there. Possibly not necessarily a function of how wonderful and great I am. I'll be the first one to tell you that. But surely being in the right place at the right time. One guy left, one guy got fired, one guy became a broker, one guy moved on to another company. And I was good at what I did. People liked me. I played the game. And I went on to become a, a, a broker. So starting in 1989, I got a seat on the stock exchange, which was the right to trade. Uh, it was a huge honor. Uh, my parents came. We signed. We went up to the uh, stock exchange luncheon club to a big boardroom where everyone from, you know, FDR, Federal... Uh, Franklin Roosevelt to, you know, Alexander Hamilton signed the book to become a member of the stock exchange. So it was sort of like Santa Claus's big book. We went up there. It was a very, very formal proceeding. My parents came. There were photographs taken. They opened up this big leather-bound book that literally the first page of the book was a signing by Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of the United States from 1786. He was one of the first guys to sign that book. And then I signed the book, Peter Tuckman. So I was given a seat on the stock exchange and I went on to become a, a broker. And I've been a broker ever since. I just celebrated 30 years on the floor of the stock exchange. I've been a broker for 27 years. Well, congratulations, Peter. And thank you very much for sharing that story. That was really cool to hear. So like you mentioned, you are a broker still to this day, of course, could you paint the picture of what is your role as a broker on the floor these days? Because, you know, uh, guys listening to this podcast are probably very familiar with online brokers, but perhaps not so much with the role and importance of brokers actually on the floor of the exchange. So could you paint that picture for us a little bit and shed some insight into your role as a broker on the floor? Absolutely. I will give you a little back history on it. Because since the early 90s, the, the, um, I've had to reinvent myself a number of times. The role of a broker has changed many times. Okay, when I started, we, did, we, were, we had open outcry, which meant that you would walk into a crowd. There was screaming and yelling. Everything was done on paper. You executed stock. You took, traded with another broker face-to-face. -face. You stood in a crowd. It may take you an hour to execute a trade. It may take you days to execute a trade. But you stood there and you, it was an auction market, right? Like you may know a farmer's market, it was an auction market. I came into a stock, there were two sellers, there were two buyers, it was a market maker. We discussed it, we came up with a price, we negotiated with my customer. Phones were, calls were happening back and forth and we, we, we ended up, our goal was to consummate a trade. The trade was put on the tape. It was a thousand shares, it was 10,000 shares, it was a million shares. There were block trades. It, it, it was a different experience. And um, in, in the late in the late 90s, you know, the whole open outcry uh, system started slowing down because they started coming up with computer trade. They came up with handheld computers on the floor. I would say probably mid-2000s. So I started out as a retail and institutional broker for Cowan & Company. I went on to a company called Lee Securities. So I was basically executing institutional business, right? Buy a million shares, 
work it, limit orders, market orders, you know, uh, put together a couple of prints, la, la, la. That was how we traded. Then I left Cowan & Company in uh, mid to late 90s. I went to a convertible arbitrage firm, which was a, very, was a real specific art on the floor of the stock exchange. So convertible arbitrage are people who you're buying, you know, preferred stocks and common stocks. Preferred stocks have high yield, high dividend, and people who are in convertible arbitrage do what's called setting up positions where they will go long the preferred stock and they will short the common stock at the same time and create a long net net long position in a convertible arbitrage in a convertible preferred stock. And this was an art that I worked on for a long time. It was a lot of crossing of stocks. It was a lot of, uh, it was a lot of mathematics involved in that because you were trading millions and millions of shares, sometimes only for pennies or sometimes for nickels, sometimes for dimes, but it, it was a fascinating part of the business, which I was happy to learn. And that, that sort of convertible arbitrage doesn't really, it happens now through computers upstairs, but it, it, it was a big part of my life on the floor of the stock exchange for a while. Then I went on to do a more institutional business. Well, I'm called a $2 broker. So a $2 broker is, so you have firms like JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, who are called house, they're, they're, those are the houses. Those are the big brokerage houses. And they have their employees who are their brokers. And then there's what's called overflow business. When their brokers are unable to do all the business, there are people since the beginning of time who were called $2 brokers who did commission business. They sort of roamed around the floor because of their specialty in a certain stock or a relationship with a certain market maker. They were given overflow business by firms and they were paid a commission. Back in the day, they were paid $2 for every 100 shares they executed, hence the name $2 broker. Well, at the time, in the 80s, there were about, in the early, early 1900s, 1,654 seats were created on the floor of this New York Stock Exchange, seat being the right to trade. They had value anywhere from $30,000 to $8 million over time. The value of a seat on the stock exchange was a function of how much money people were making, how busy the market was, and how the economy was doing. Okay, market, the market in seats, so you have to buy a seat or lease a seat in order to have the right to trade stock. Pre-1929 crash, seats were trading at $30,000. They went up to $180,000 before the crash because the market was really roaring. During the crash of 1929, the value of a seat went down to 15000 and then from 1929 until 1990, I think, when the company went public, they went from $15,000 to $8 million for the right to trade stock on the floor of the stock exchange. So I have always, I've never been a house broker. I've always been at what's called a $2 broker. So I've always basically been trading for other people's accounts. I do not trade for my own account. That's actually legal on the floor of the stock exchange. I'm not allowed to be involved in stocks that I am trading for customers for 30 days. So in fact, as odd as it may be to you and to your audience, I, Peter Tuckman, have never owned a share of stock in my life. But anyway, that, you know, for me, it, I, I learned from the great Gordon Gecko line from the movie Wall Street, never get emotional about money. If I'm trading my customers' money, I need to be solely focused on doing the best thing for them and I cannot be worried about what my account is doing or what's going on with my portfolio. 
So therefore, I don't have a portfolio. All that being said, when computers came into the market, not necessarily high-frequency trading, but I'm talking computers came down to the floor of the stock exchange. And open outcry was not the way that we traded anymore. As your audience may know from the movie Wall Street, where you see people screaming and yelling, ripping paper and whatnot like that, sort of a trading places, Wall Street type scenario. They brought handheld computers into the stock exchange, which meant that orders were not being generated by phone calls, but they were being generated by computers, by IMs or whatnot. They were entered upstairs on a desk. They were sent down to what's called a BBS system on the floor. And then they were sent into a handheld computer. And that I did, I would then send the order electronically to the book, to the market maker. And then my order was engaged electronically with the contra side of the trade. So if I'm a buyer with a limit and I have a thousand shares of Disney to buy and my customer's instructions are a $125 top, then I get an order on my handheld. I send it out to the book, the book being the market maker. The market maker being the man who gets all the buy side and sell side interest from throughout the world, and he's able to, he's the point of execution. Um, so if I have a limit order, I send out a order to buy a thousand shares at 125. It's then put out into the world, and if someone wants to sell a thousand at 125, we are electronically connected. All that to, to say basically that my job as a broker trading institutional money in an open outcry situation was forced to change to an electronic marketplace. That changed my relationship to my customers, a different relationship to the market makers, and basically a different relationship to my job because I'm somebody who thrives on the screaming and yelling. What made me a great broker was that I could read the sellers in the crowd. I could read the other people. I had relationships with them. And if I came in there to buy a million shares and I kept my cards to my chest and I, was, I, 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 had, a, I had an ability to, I, I sort of mastered the art of, of, I became a pretty good trader because of my ability to read people, because of my relationships with customers and with people in the industry. So I was able to open people up and we were able, our goal, your, your goal out there is, not, is to get your best price for your customer, but also to get stock on the tape right? That benefits everyone. And um, so, you know, in, in mid 2000s, when, when we started going electronic, things changed. My customer base, you know, a lot of customers didn't really need to have, um, well, let me say this, the customers were forced by their trading desks to use the electronic system and not engage humans like myself, brokers, as much. It was cheaper, the market was trading at a much quicker pace, and basically people just wanted, wanted um, executions. You know, back in the old days, the average trade that went on the tape was about 10,000 shares. Now the average trade is 100 shares. Things are traded 100 shares at a time. So you needed a human interaction to put together buyers and sellers and, and put on these nice blocks of trade. So as time has gone by and we've become a lot more electronic, my job as a broker has, has, has changed a lot. The relationship of the trading desks to the floor of the stock exchange has traded a lot. The mergers that were necessary by brokerage firms, market making firms, due to the fact that it used to take one broker to trade 10 stocks 
and, and now you've got one machine trading a thousand stocks made it that they didn't need 1,654 brokers anymore. They didn't need 500 market makers and they didn't need a hundred brokerage firms and 30 market making firms. They were forced to merge due to efficiency of cost, which for me has been a big disappointment because I'm not a tech guy. I'm not a, I still don't own a computer. I don't particularly like computers and I don't like electronic trading. I like the, the personal touch. I like the human factor. So that being said, a lot of people have, have left the exchange, have uh, gone on to other jobs. Those who have survived have basically had to reinvent themselves. Uh, those who have survived have held on to relationships that they've had over time and have sort of um, cashed in on whatever thing made them a special broker. All that being said, what I've had to do over the last, so I would say, let's say in 2006, things were already very electronic. Uh, I will talk about the crash of seven and eight in a minute, but your the, the long-winded version of your question to me about what's my job as a broker, and I think it's important that I gave you all this back history, is that right now I, I still have a job on the stock exchange. I'm still quite successful, and I still have a big presence on the floor um, because I have created a new business model that is a viable force that uh, cannot be done electronically. It needs a human involvement, and that's basically reading the opening of the market, IPO markets, secondary markets, and the closing of the market. As you know, you're a trader, and I'm sure your audience knows that we open the U.S. markets relative to the futures are trading around the clock. A lot of stocks are trading around the clock. The New York Stock Exchange is not the only place to trade. So trade, you know, mar markets are being made around the clock 24-7. The futures, the spiders, all the ETFs and whatnot are trading actively when we are asleep. So, but the New York Stock Exchange, the floor of the of the New York Stock Exchange, which while we only probably maintain about 25% of the world volume now still, still opens at 9.30. It opens relative to supply and demand in the market. It opens as a reaction to what happened overnight, and it opens at a price a price determined by supply and demand. So what I've been for, and then the market also closes in the same fashion, okay? When I come in the morning at 8.30, the futures are doing what they're doing, the exchange rates are doing what they're doing, the ETFs are doing what they're doing, and the geopolitical stuff is obviously running rampant all over the world. But, however, at 8.30 in the morning, my handheld computer on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange gets a feed of what there is to buy and sell in the market that will be executed at 9.30 on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Not what's trading in a way, not what's doing anything else. This is flow coming into New York, okay? Now, that flow will sometimes be, um, let's, give, let, let's give today as an example. There was a global sell-off at 4 a.m. last night. The futures were trading down 300 points. When I got to work this morning, the implied opening in the New York market was down about 280 on the Dow. Well, to, for the Dow to open down 280, you need all those Dow stocks and all those stocks in the S&P to open down to a level where the futures will coincide with where the stock itself is trading. Okay? 
So I've developed a business model, which um, I will share with you to, to, uh, as much as I can without divulging my secrets, where there, I'm able to develop an edge and trade the opening of the market. I trade IPOs. There's nothing like, you know, the very few people in the world are able to get stock on the inside of deals. So uh, because the good deals are oversubscribed and the bad deals are undersubscribed and the bad deals you don't want to be involved in. So we've got the third, the third tertiary market, which is our market. When stocks go public on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, there is a wonderful trade to be had by trading it in the aftermarket, which is our market, okay? The stock is priced the night before. They've done their roadshow. They come to New York. Um, and I will go on in, in the conversation and explain to you one of the, some of the most wonderful IPOs, which I've been uh, happy to be part of. But there is a market to trade. See, I need to find an edge right now, okay? Because the markets are pushing towards going all electronic. And I, as a human, as somebody who wants to maintain a presence on the floor of the stock exchange and give added value to my customers, have to find an edge in this crazy electronic world. So I scrape and I burn on a daily basis to find an edge. That edge comes in my opening, opening market trades, my closing market trades, my IPO trades, my secondaries trades, and some intraday trading. So um, I've been able to hook up with a, uh, a hedge fund who likes my business model that I've built, um, which is trading these trades I've described to you to a, to a, to a certain extent. And it works in with their business, one of their strategies, and we're able to trade together. Uh, I'm on an open line with my customers all morning and all afternoon, and we build positions, and we, we are day traders. The strategy I trade is a strict day trading strategy. The longest I hold a position is probably two and a half to three hours. So I've reinvented myself. That's my job. I walk in to the market on the, uh, at nine o'clock in the morning. I get a, a, a quick run on what the markets, uh, what the buy and sell imbalances are on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I see where the futures are trading away. I make a trade. Uh, I don't trade pre-market at all. I let New York open and I make a trade. Uh, I get involved in IPOs, uh, falling into certain um, guidelines that I've built that work through historical data. I buy secondaries that were issued the night before, uh, also by historic data. Uh, at 2 o'clock, I'm being given information about projected market imbalances for the closing bell, which is information that brokers are privy to. And I build a, um, I bu I've built a business model to trade that information. So whether I go long some stocks, short some stocks, trade some spiders, um, I, I start getting involved in the market around 2 o'clock for my afternoon trade. And then I, um, these, are, these are all things that are done through the, through the New York Stock Exchange, through my handheld computer, and through relationships I have with traders upstairs and hedge funds. And then at the end of the day, I close out my positions at 4 o'clock with closing trades. Everything I'm long, I get out of. Everything I'm short, I cover. If there's a huge spike or sell-off near the close, I may put on what's called a reversal trade, meaning if the market closes up 500, I may get out of my longs and go a little short overnight. 
And same way, if the market sells off, I may uh, go buy a little stock for a flip trade for the morning. But that's, that's Peter Tuckman as a trader right now. No, that's really good, Peter. And thanks again so much for, for giving a lot of detail with that answer. Um, and props to you for being able to, you know, having to reinvent and evolve with markets over time. I, I, you know, I have no doubt that was quite a challenge. Just something I want to ask you uh, leading on from that is just so that we're clear, to what extent do you have the decision to buy and sell for your clients? Do you have full decision on that or are you somewhat following their orders to some extent? Okay, so I've described to you a number of different kinds of order flow. So um, I, I, okay, it's sort of complicated. There, I do have some, I have some discretion, absolutely. Each order flow has different restrictions to it. Uh, the, our IPO trades have a business model built around them, which are restrictions relative to historic data, which I follow to a T. And they work a proportionally good percent of the time. Secondaries also. There's, you know, I am not a predictor of the market. I am not an economist. I'm a day trader. And I'm also somebody who cannot tell a customer what to do. But what I can do is convey information and feeling about what I'm seeing in the marketplace. Being on the floor of the stock exchange, which is something, you know, I'm one of the big touters of the human factor in trading. I am one of those people that is fearful of what I call gorillas in pajamas hitting buttons, which are people who, without an edge, depending on how big their pockets are, were sitting at home around the world, hitting buttons, trying to find volatility, trying to hit technical levels, and trying to manipulate a market, okay? I'm somebody who's trying to level the playing field, but offer the human factor into my trading. So therefore, me and my customers, and I only have a couple, because it's basically a uh, around-the-clock, uh, on-open-line relationship to my customers, because as you know, this market can trade on, uh, on a dime. As I described today's market, we were selling off, it looked like the end of the world, down 400, and then we're part of this wild, crazy information highway, right? There are millions of more people trading the market than before. There's a lot more information that we're being barraged with on a moment-by-moment basis. There are people who are tracking Twitter with keywords about takeovers and rumors and oil production and this not, and they are built into robots that are reacting to the market. So for me as a human being, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm fishing for crocodiles here. I need to be able to use my ability as a human who is, who, who's got a good sense of the market and who can feel the energy. Okay, it's an amazing thing to be in a room with hundreds of brokers without the screaming and yelling and still be able to sense when something is happening. Right. In the old days, you know, uh, it, it's there's that I don't know if you know the movie Trading Places. I'm sure you've seen it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when in the old days, when this was all about humans and order flowing and screaming and yelling and clerks and phones clicking and phones ringing. You know, when things got busy and news was coming out and people were starting to corner the market in the orange juice futures, as it were, you know, everyone would run to that stock and they would, you could feel it was palpable, the energy in a room. Well, what's, tra- what's changed is that I've got a bunch of, you know, 
there's a couple hundred people less and they've got these computers that don't make much noise, maybe a little beep beep here and there, but you're not able to feel that energy that we used to feel. So I've had to, once again, reinvent to figure out a way, well, what is my edge here? What can I do to make that difference? So each order, each order type that I get has different discretion on it. There are certain ones where net, net at the end of the day, okay, let me go back. Certain order flows, certain orders, certain order types have different restrictions. Some, my customer and I have agreed just to follow the instructions. Their instructions to me come from historic data, okay? It's a hedge fund that works off probability and all my thinking and wishing that a stock is gonna go up or down is, is not as powerful as probability of what's gonna happen historically. Historical data, as your, as your traders may know, uh, is powerful in this marketplace. It's because there's so many people in the market who trade off that information. It's like technical levels. Where's the support? Where's the ceiling? And how many people are going to trade off that thing? If 182 in the futures is a known support level and there are thousands of people waiting for it to hit to that point before they buy, well, when it hits 182, it's going to rally. It's just because it's probability. So I have order types where I have more input and some I have less. Okay. Um, I am not there to make up information. I'm there to be the conduit for information flow and market flow of order flow that I'm privy to as a trader on the floor. And I try to impart that. Okay. This market is way more powerful than what Peter Tuckman thinks is going to happen. I'm there to convey information that I see and not there to make predictions. That's really important. So the amount of input I have, you know, if I say to my guy, I really don't think we should do that, let's not do it. He may say to me, Pete, I hear what you're saying, but probability shows us you should do that. Or he may go, thanks for that information. If I, but more importantly, I'm there in the business model I've created, and this may change down the road, the way the market's changing, where what I'm seeing and how I convey that information to my customer, probability and percentages is a buy to sell, dollars and dollar numbers buy and sell, percentages buy and sell stocks, to be able to convey that information in a clear and concise way so that my traders can react to it, right, is more important. So, I mean, that is a bit of a confusing answer, but it's not because, you know, some order flow has specific rules, some order flow has, has some, um, has some, some flexibility to it, but net, net, I'm there to convey, convey information. Okay, got it. Now, that's a, that's a brilliant answer, Peter. So, yeah, again, thank you. Uh, a question I have for you, which I'm curious to, to know the answer to, is what sort of events lead up to you having your biggest days on the floor, like, you know, jobs numbers, interest rates, elections, like what sort of events lead to you having a really big day? So there's two different ways of me having a big day. Okay. So I am a sort of, I am a, uh, a broker's broker in that for me, my, I have two customers who I've developed really close relationships with. We are friends as well as business, uh, compadres. Um, obviously I'm there to make money. I'm not there to make money at their expense. Uh, so for me, a big day is when we, you know, and, and sometimes it coincides and sometimes it doesn't that they have a big day and I don't. I am a commission broker. 
Okay, I do not share in their profits or losses. I'm there to execute stock and I make a commission for every share, okay? I do never know what they make or they lose. For me, I know if they win or they lose, okay? So, uh, look, you know, in different jobs, to win or to lose is, is, is questionable. So, um, it, it's not always the case when they have a big, big day that I have a big, big day, okay? Because they may have, I may have had the right call, but it may not have translated into a lot of shares of stock executed by me. I don't know if that you understand that, but let's say let's say this. Let's say it's sort of a uh, a quiet. My the amount of stock I do on a daily basis is a function of how many shares there is to buy and sell in the marketplace in a given day. Okay, I'm able to interpret that flow and execute stock. Okay, so sometimes uh, for me, you know, I I love when my customers make money. Um, I love when I make money, obviously. I don't like it when I make money and they lose. That happens. Sometimes I do a shitload, of, excuse me, I do a lot of business and they lose money. We're on the wrong side of the trade. I ended up billing them for a lot of commission dollars, but net net it's a loser for them. That doesn't make me happy, okay? Um, what makes for a big day for Peter? Okay, so on a, you know, we've had a number of years that have been very busy, very volatile. I make money in volatile markets, okay? I make money with big moves. As I said, I don't own stocks, so I don't really care if the market goes up or down. That being said, a big day for me are S&P rebalances. I don't know if you guys know what that is, is but quarterly, uh, okay, so, you know, you have Dow stocks, you have S&P stocks, you have Morgan Stanley index stocks that are Russell stocks, these huge indexes, and funds and institutions have their <clears throat> portfolios weighted in these indexes, depending on the asset value of the stock and where the stock's come and where the stock's going and where how their portfolio is acting, they need to maintain a certain presence of percentage within those indexes. So therefore, sometimes on a monthly, within the Russell 1000 and 2000, it happens monthly, in the S&P, it happens quarterly. In the Morgan Stanley Index, it happens five times a year. In a lot of these ETFs, it happens more often than that, where they're called what things are called rebalances. Rebalances mean there's going to be an inflow or outflow of shares into the index to rebalance everyone within their positions in the indexes. Those are big days for me. That means we're going to get a lot of flow. Those tend to be big movement days. They tend to be directional days. I make money when the market is directional, not when, uh, you know, if I'm able to uh, predict through the information that I see on the floor that the market is going to go up or down in a big way, that's a helpful day for me. So these days happen, and option expiration days are big days. My make my money as a function of how many shares I execute. So... You know, when I make a lot of money, it's obviously a good day for me. But when I make money in conjunction with my customer making a lot of money and with me making a correct call, see, I sort of look at this as, you know, this job for me is my mission. This job is something I love going to work. I go to work with a broken leg. Right now I have a boot on my leg because I have a torn ligament in my foot. I have basically not taken a vacation in four years. This is a job I love. It's a job I love because I love the energy. I love the action. I love the people. And it's something I love to do. 
And as I say it to, I mentor a lot of kids, uh, college students who come down to the floor, and I have a son who's studying finance at Bentley University in New York, that for me, the most important thing is to find something you love to do, something that you're passionate about. I've been doing this job since 1985. I would rather do this than anything else. So, um, you know, for me, every day that I go to work and I get that, that, that um, adrenaline rush that I'm able to, you know, am I frustrated when I, you know, when, when my signals are showing me that the market's going to go up and it goes down? Absolutely. Uh, do I not like being, I don't like being wrong. Uh, I love when I'm able to, when all the chips fall in, you know, and it's the perfect storm and it's a big wave and I'm riding it. I love that. There's nothing better than that. So, um, you know, what days have been the biggest for me? It's really hard to say. We've, um, you know, granted, we do a lot more volume on those days I've described, the option expirations, the S&P rebalances. Uh, the last day of the months are big days. Uh, the last day of the years are big days. Um, you know, uh, traditionally our Fed announcement days, big days, not, they are volatile days for the market. Sometimes they're not as big days for me because the swings are so radical in the market that people are really, are, are, are cautious on what flow, what side to be on for the closing bell. As I said, I'm a day trader, not an investor, right? So, you know, the, the, the flow that comes to the floor on the end of a day on a Wednesday when the Fed has spoken, is, it can be a confusing spread because the market at 2 o'clock, the market was up 100. The Fed came out with some announcement that no one was able to digest. We went down 200, up 300, down 100, and closed flat. And by the end of the day, the flow was so confused, nobody knew what to do. So um, those days, while you would think they're while they are volatile and you would think they would be big days for me are not always that way. Okay. <clears throat> Got it. So yeah, I, I, I like that answer and I really like how you highlighted uh, the passion there. I mean, anyone who has seen your picture and I presume pretty much everyone listening probably has seen your picture seen as you're the most photographed man on wall street um, can see straight away that, you know, there's an undeniable passion you have for the markets. Um, and, you know, we can also hear it in the way that you, you speak about this. So uh, another question I have for you, and I'm really interested to get your take on this. The way you see it, how significant is the closing price of the major indices? Um, well, I, I actually think it's very significant. So let me, let me give you a scenario, which is sort of something I've, kind of feel strongly about, and this has come through really me forensically analyzing what's going on in the market over the last number of months and years, actually. So what, what, what is different? You know, yes, we've gone from open outcry to electronic markets. Yes, there's a lot of algorithms being used, which causes big moves in the market up, way, up or down. Yes, there's all these other trading platforms bats and all these other ARCA and stuff where people trade, where are less liquid markets where you can move stocks bigger up and down in a way than there used to be. Um, yes, there's high frequency trading, which is not something I participate in or endorse in any way. But what is it that has made the new normal of a market as yesterday 
where the market actually went, actually moved a thousand points in one day, meaning it was up 200, down 100, up 300, down 200. Intraday, we had a thousand point move in the Dow. We had a 350 point move in the futures and the market closed flat. So where is all of this coming from? For me, I find it fascinating. So I'm a big, I'm a, I, I love, I don't know if you guys get to watch it over there, but you know, finance television is a big thing. Um, there are a lot of blogs as are you, uh, that you have. There's a lot of webinars about the market and learning how to trade. There's a lot of finance TV. There's the mad money Jim Cramer. I don't know if you guys know who he is. He's one of, you know who Jim Cramer is? I do, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you've got mad money. You've got uh, fast money. You've got CNBC around the clock. You've got CNN. You've got Bloomberg. You've got Yahoo Finance. So you've got a barrage of information and news services that are pumping information, Fox News, pumping information about the market, okay? Uh, you've got round-the-clock tweets and Instagram and Twitters and Schmitters and all the rest of that stuff, which is passing information around. You've got the internet per se, which is just, you know, it's, a, it's an information highway that's barraging the world with stuff. And then you've got which I think is a function of all of the things I just described, that in the old days, you know, before you were born and when I was a kid, people made money, you know, and they put their money in a retirement fund, which went into a mutual fund, and they never saw it for 30 years. And they, you know, if they needed it, they sold it. Otherwise, when they retired, they took it out on a monthly basis. But they were not involved in their money, right? There was a limited amount of people. There were people who were in the industry were obviously involved in their money. There weren't all these hedge funds. There weren't all these uh, ETFs and spiders and futures and all that other stuff. And there were not thousands and thousands of people like yourself around the world who were trading their own money. It just didn't exist. Okay? There were, as I described, there were people, you made money, you put it in your 401k, it went to a mutual fund, and you never looked at it again, except if you were in the business. So as a function of all this information and the internet and all this education and all these shows, people have taken, and, and I, think, I think that's the main reasons that I see it. People have taken, and the volatility in the market perhaps, and people loving finance and loving the exposure that, you know, everyone knows about Wall Street, everyone knows about the stock market. Uh, you know, uh, um, every, I, I, as amazingly as it is, I'm sort of this, you know, fun-loving, crazy guy who's been working on the floor for years and who's become really famous because of the, my picture being all over the world. And, and I do, you know, a lot of news pieces. I, I was on this week, CNN, Fox News, CBS. I mean, kids come up to me on the street and stop me and want to take their picture with me. I think it's hysterical. Um, you know, I get uh, there are tourists who stop me on the street and saw me on TV. I'm on a thousand front pages all over the world. So people are involved in this market and they love it and they've taken their money back. And, you know, tw 10 years ago, there was no group of young people in Australia who were chatting with traders. It didn't exist, my friend. Okay. So you've got tens of thousands of people all over the world who are involved in their money and trading the market. Right. And that is really, um, that's an amazing thing, but that's really, that. That is a function of what's going on in the marketplace today. 
right? That you've got, and, and, and everybody, and what's amazing about the market is for everyone who's buying it, thinks it's a great buy, there's someone selling it, okay? That person may think they're, they're selling it because they think it's going lower. They're selling it because they bought it cheaper. They're selling it because they have to. But so, you know, the amazing thing about an auction market is that everybody who's buying it thinks that, that buy is a great idea. And there's someone selling it who also thinks that's a great idea. And now we have tens of thousands of more people in the market who are long or short stocks for any number of reasons. Everybody can interpret all this information differently, okay? We have a market selling off because of oil. We have a market selling off because of Fed fears, because of China, because of European banks. We have people buying gold and selling equities as a fear trade. We've got people who are long Forex and short bonds for whatever reason. We've got people who have been destroyed in the energy trade. Commodity funds are being blown up. We've got so many people in so many complicated trades, and then we have options. So this market is being is being tossed and turned like sand in, in, in you know in the undercurrent of a wave. And it's and everyone has a reason to be there. Everyone has the right to be there, but everyone's there for a different reason. And everyone has a different posture, and everyone is interpreting all this information differently, right? That's why I, I'm enjoying my place in this industry because everyone else who's online or who's on TV, you know, giving their explanation, whether it's on CNN or NBC or whatever, about analyzing what happens in a day in the market's trading, are making believe they're economists and all that other. I, I don't purport to be any of these things. I'm a guy who's on the battlefield there interpreting what I'm seeing and being very humbled by the fact that there's thousands of different interpretations to all this information. And that's what's making this market move and rock, right? And that humbles me because, you know, this is a market that's not for the faint of heart. This is a market that is moving billions of dollars in moments, right? This is a market that is thrashing and burning a lot of traders. This is a market that in 2015 has taken big fund managers who were you know, traditionally up 30, 40% down the tubes. This is a market that is losing people billions of dollars and on the other side, making people billions of dollars. But it, it's a humbling place to be. It's a dangerous place to be this way. But I think that what's so important is that the crazy wild volatile moves is a function of all this information we're getting and all the different interpretations of this information. Okay, Peter. So just tying that back into the closing price and the significance of it. Oh, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I went off on a tangent. No, you that asked, was that was awesome. Asked, I really appreciate that. Question, and I gave you a complicated answer. What I meant, well, what I said I really feel was important and it's a, and 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 I will now finally answer your question. The what goes on where a stock opens and closes on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, okay, even though we only are 25% of the world volume, has an effect, a domino effect, on what happens around the world, okay? Yes, we react to what happened in the markets before our opening, and yes, everything in the world is affected by where we end up closing, okay? So the price and the directionality and the voraciousness of our closing prints 
whether it's the S&P futures, whether it's the Russell, whether it's the transports, whether it's the price of oil or the price of gold, where we end our trading day goes on to affect what happens in the rest of the financial markets throughout the world. Okay? It just ha- it's just the way it is. We are no longer the biggest market in the world, but we are the most significant market in the world. Okay? And that closing price is basically is going to set the stage in so many ways. Now, there was a time where the closing price, you know, if you closed up 400, you were pretty sure that the market, that tomorrow the market was going to go down 100. But, um, you know, or if the market closed flat, it was not going to purport that much interest in the market in the next day's trade. But what ends up happening, if you look, you're a trader, right? Um, you, you see that, that the, that, that last 15 minutes of trading and that last hour and a half of trading in the New York market is significant every day. It's rare that you'll see a flat line from two o'clock on because all the other markets that are closes, people are coming in. You know, here, here's an interesting fact that why, you know, when New York time, 11 a.m. every morning is when the European markets close. Okay. Inevitably, you will see a big reaction, whether it's a spike or a sell-off in our market when Europe closes. Now, is that people who can no longer trade in New York, in Europe and want to get out of their shares? Possibly. Is it a bet on tomorrow's trade? Very definitely. So where, wherever a market closes, okay, um, ours, the most important of all, is going to have a huge effect on what goes on in a domino effect throughout the markets in the world, okay? Short of and in accordance with all the other wild and crazy stuff that's going on. Is there going to be, you know, we closed today down 252 points. That was after a 400-point sell-off, a 250-point rally, a 100-point sell-off, a 100-point rally, and a 50-point sell-off. Net-net, at the end of the day, after a 1,000-point move, we closed down 250. Does that to down 250 feel like a win, sort of? Yes. Was gold up 50 points? Yes. Did oil actually close down below 27? Yes. Are these significant facts? Yes. Did the Dow close down 255 points? Yes. Is that 150 points off its low? Yes. How is that going to affect tomorrow's open? Well... My feeling is that that it closed in a weak posture, okay, because it did not sustain the rally we got by the OPEC news. So I kind of think that this downward trend is not over. Now, what, what's going to happen overnight in Europe, in China, with European banks? I don't know yet. Is that going to affect what happens tomorrow morning? In a big way, okay? So in answer to your question, does the New York close is it significant in a big way? Is the directionality, is the, is the intent of the buying or selling that leads into the four o'clock close in New York important? Incredibly so. Is what happens after we close and we go to sleep and you guys wake up and China wakes up and the Far East wakes up and Europe starts trading again, is that going to affect the significant open tomorrow morning? Absolutely. So, you know, all... A very long-winded Peter Tuckman answer to your original question and all that I've given you is that 
The markets are trading 24-7. There's millions of people in the market. There's a million different interpretations to all this news that we're getting. And there's so many factors affecting this market, whether it's gold, whether it's oil, whether it's geopolitical, whether it's just a broken market, whether it's banks, every market's close will affect those that come after. Sure. Okay. Now that's an awesome answer. Peter, thanks so much. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Now, I couldn't have you on the podcast without asking you about some of your most memorable moments from participating on the floor. So, I mean, let me just ask that. What are some of your most memorable moments from participating on the floor? Okay, I'll go back to the crash of 87 as a clerk. Market closed down 660 points. Uh, that was probably the scariest I've ever experienced, perhaps because I was young and new, and the market was way lower than it was. It was all humans. Stocks were careening. You know, a lot of people went out of business that, that night. Uh, Black Friday, as they called it. Uh, stocks, you know, I was trading a stock called Digital Equipment at the time. It was a $150 stock and it closed down $68. Um, I was clerking at the time. I was under a lot of stress and it was, I was receiving hundreds and hundreds of orders at a time. It felt to me what it must have been like in 1929 in the crash. It was just like, go sell them, sell them, just sell them. I don't care. And orders were just being sent in barrage amounts and it was fear and panic. That was the first one I experienced. Um, let's see, what happened in the 90s? I don't remember the 90s that well. <laughs> Very funny. Um, uh, I don't remember particular episodes in the 90s that, you know, there were, there were some big exciting days for me 
where I crossed millions and millions of shares for a customer and I um, uh, news came out and stocks were up or down. Nothing is really ringing, ringing out in my mind at the moment. Uh, I would say that, you know, the 2007, 2008, 2009 period were significant days, those down thousand days. Um, um, that was sort of the beginning of my, uh, where pictures started to be taken of me. My hair was, was, uh, was at its peak of wild and crazy. Um, markets were moving radically. It was sort of the real, the, our, our first experience of an electronic market moving in thousand point swings. And that was, um, those were kind of significant, scary days. Um, you know, for me, a scary, for me, a scary day are days where you're feeling, you know, you're feeling panic and you're feeling, um, unclear of what's going on. Uh, I lived through nine 11 on the floor of the stock exchange that I would have to admit, not from a trading point of view, because we never opened, but being on the floor of the stock exchange, walking out of the subway after the first plane had hit and seeing a piece of the fuselage on the statute of George Washington being in lockdown on the floor of the exchange, being evacuated at 11 o'clock uh, through three and a half foot of ash and black smoke was probably one of my most unpleasant traumatic days. Um, I would think that once the market reopened after 9-11, which was a week later, was an exciting, uplifting day that we had survived and that we were resilient and resolute and that they weren't going to get us. And so that was a significant day. As far as exciting moments on the floor, you know, if your audience looks me up on Google, you'll have 100 pages of fun, exciting pictures of me with celebrities and whatnot, as I'm sort of, as you said, the most photographed man on the floor of the exchange. I am somebody that's uh, engaging and fun and, and, and uh, humorous and, and, you know, one of the big... Um, supporters of the of the floor and the floor loves me and I love them so that's kind of fun I would say meeting Sean Connery and um, and some fun comedians and some great entrepreneurs have been great moments for me as far as trading goes um, uh, you know I would say the last two months have been significant they've been exciting for me intraday moves of thousand points are exciting been big winning epic days for me and my customer, when I'm able to pick the directionality of the market and be right, have been great. Um, wonderful episodes on the floor of the stock exchange, I would say, was the year of 2013 and 14 in the IPO market. So you're a trader. I'm sure you've been involved in some of them, but you know, we've, we've unfortunately, they've the volatility of the market has sort of put a lot of these IPOs on hold. But 2013 was an extraordinary year. You know, we had Twitter, we had Facebook, we had Alibaba, we had a lot of these, um, we had LinkedIn, we had um, uh, Tableau, a lot of these internet uh, cloud companies and whatnot. And, you know, if, if um, an IPO on the floor of the stock exchange is probably one of the most exciting places to be, okay? For us as traders, it's exciting. Uh, because we are, our value is, is at its premium because we're able to convey the information necessary for customers to get involved. For me as a trader to be there to entertain the CEOs and the, 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 the dream team, as we call them, the group of the, um, of the corporate managers of the company and to see them 
their eyes light up when they go public and they hit that bell and that first stock, you know, shares of stock trades is a super exciting time. Uh, have, been, have there been IPOs where I've made a lot of money in the first 20 minutes due to a business model I've built? Absolutely. I bought Alibaba on the open, up $40, and it went up another $40, and I was able to make great money for my customer. Uh, Twitter, another one. It was, a, it was an honor meeting uh, those guys. The stock has not done well since then, but um, Jack Dorsey and that group uh, are are an exciting bunch of people. Watching Shake Shack, one of the great hamburger companies of, of modern-day hamburgers in the U.S. go public was an exciting day. Um, so, you know, for me, um, I love the fanfare. I love the celebrity. I love the energy. I love the action. I love crowds of people at work. I'm sort of a homebody uh, on, uh, from the other side of my personality, which you wouldn't think so. But... Um, you know, the adrenaline rush, the excitement of money, the excitement of trading, the uh, to be at the, you know, at, 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 I, don't, I don't miss, I don't mean to, um, I was going to say ground zero, but ground zero is like the battlefield. I don't mean to demean um, people who fight in our armed services or the place where 9-11 happened, but to be at ground zero for information and for trading you know, to be at the bottom line, to be at the cutting edge, to be at where all the information trickles down is a huge adrenaline rush. It's a huge level of excitement. And then to hop on that train and be part of the movement and make your customers happy uh, is probably one of the greatest highs there is. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt, Peter. And I'm glad you brought up the um, the IPOs. That's actually something I was going to ask you about uh, anyway. So, yeah, that was really cool to hear about. Uh, some of your most memorable IPOs. Anyway, Peter, we should probably wrap this up. Um, I just have a, a question. Uh, where can listeners go to find out more about you? Well, I can, okay, so if you want to know a little more about me, as I said, you can Google me and you'll be able to find, I've been on thousands of front pages with stories. There was a wonderful article which I would love people to read, which was by Market Watch, where they said there would never be another picture of Peter Tuckman on the floor again. It was sort of an article written by the haters who think that the floor are a bunch of clowns who don't really represent any significant added advantage to the marketplace. And we are just sort of, uh, you know, cardboard cutouts and don't mean anything. And I wrote a rebuff, which was touted all over the world as a significant piece of um, journalism. So I would appreciate if people read that. Uh, picture wise, there's pictures of me all over and you will, you will have fun with that. Now, you're also on Instagram and YouTube. I'm on Instagram as NYSE Einstein. I have a uh, YouTube channel uh, in conjunction with Verstoff Television out of Germany. It's called NYSE Einstein. Also, it's on YouTube. I do a market wrap-up every day for three minutes with uh, different accents, with sort of a, a sense of humor, but with a seriousness of a, every day's trading. So uh, that's available every night. You can look it up on uh, Versthoft Television or YouTube NYSE Einstein, and uh, and you'll you know I, I have a commercial. I do a lot of a lot of stuff on. Um, I'm going to be writing for Barron soon, I hope, and I do a lot of stuff on CNBC, Fox News, CBS, and whatnot. But what I'd love to share with your guys is you know so I've described to you that I am not an investor. I've never owned stock, and that day trading for me is something that I've. Uh, is a discipline, in my opinion, 
and that it's something that you know your audience are young traders who are day traders. And in this ruthless, ruthless market, I would like to impart onto them some information that may be helpful. I worked with a guy on the floor many, many years ago who was a trader, a market maker who got a big buyout and went on to lose all his money trading. And then he went, realized that if he learned the discipline of day trading, which is an art, which is a discipline, and which has taken down some of the greatest minds of the world, that you can actually make money in this market, whether it's swing trading, uh, technical trading, or just market trading on a daily basis. So I work with a gentleman. He's at a company called T3 Trading. His name is David Green, and he runs a webinar. He runs a chat room, and he runs a trading school. And he's asked me to let everyone know in your circle, Aaron, that if they called 1-888-998-3548 or they went online to t3live.com trading lab that they could be part of his chat room he's offering and code word green it's called the green room code word green that he will offer them a week of free trial in his mentoring chat room and I, I recommend everyone to go online, look up T3 Trading, look up David Green, take his offer of a free week with him, because in my opinion, of all my years of trading, he is a master. He's somebody I use as my go-to guy. If anyone needs to contact me, NYSE Einstein on Instagram, they can contact me through you. I offer them the green room as an amazing, lifelong mentoring trading place, and I, I wish everyone good luck. This is a rough market, man. You know, this market has taken out everybody, and it's not going to get any easier right now. So any help, be humble. Ask for help doesn't mean, you know, asking for help in trading is not, get, is, is not uh, assuming that you're a loser. It's a way to win in this market, and this market is ruthless. So I beg everyone to be humble and ask for help in this and learn as much as they can about the discipline of day trading. These are new new times we got going. These are new rules, man. For sure. So I'll be I'll be sure to include all of those links uh, at chatwithtraders.com, uh, including the article you mentioned there as well, Peter, which I read prior to hopping on this call with you. And um, yeah, really great article. So that'll be in the links uh, at chatwithtraders.com. Everything will be there all in one place. Now, Peter, let's take this out with a bang. What two words are you most famous for? <laughs> well, I'm famous for the word giddy up. That's the one I was looking for. <laughs> giddy up. All I can say is, guys, yeah, <laughs> these are just amazing times for you guys to be young fund traders. I just say giddy up, guys. Just, you know, this is, and I say booyah, which is a big mad money name. It's like you've got you to trade with energy, trade with exultation, you know, jump in. Don't get stubborn. Don't turn a, a profit into a, don't turn a reasonable profit into an unreasonable loss. That's all I can say. I like that. I like that. Excellent stuff, Peter. Thank you so much. It was a huge honor to speak with you. Honor to speak to you. I'm excited for you. I'm always available for you and your people anytime, anything I can do to help. I'm here to mentor anybody who wants to be involved in this market. It's the greatest place in the world. And I, I wish happy trading, man. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. 
So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Oh, 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 oh